Thank you. Thanks very much. He blessedly left out my most ignominious accomplishment. I ran for governor in 2008 in the state of North Carolina as a libertarian and found that I usually only could get applause if I led them myself. So that was the reason for that, <laughs> that outrage. Let's start with a famous conehead. It's not a, not a Photoshop picture, that's his actual head. Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, one of the inventors of the uh, web browser Netscape, has a number of successes in the information economy. He wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal in November 2011. The title of it is that software is eating the world. And it struck me then at the time, and I've been working for quite a while since, on a book called Tomorrow 3.0. And it has a rather grandiose thesis. So let me tell you the punchline, and then we'll spend the rest of my talk on the joke. But this way, you'll know where we're going. <clears throat> the first great economic revolution was the Neolithic, the transition from hunter-gatherer society to fixed agriculture. And that was largely a production revolution in the sense that specialization enabled human beings to produce a lot more stuff. Now, you might ask, why would someone have preferred a transition which probably dramatically reduced their welfare? Because after the Neolithic transition, people were shorter, they had shorter lives, their, their teeth showed that they ate a less varied diet, they had less good nutrition, the stuff that was in their garbage middens was less good. Why would they do that? And the answer is, you could support a thousand times as many people with specialization. So imagine that you're a tribe of a hundred kin-related hunter-gatherers. And you say, we're not going to do that fixed agriculture stuff. We're going to be hunter-gatherers and roam as we always have. And there's 40 adult males in your group of 100, and they're very warlike and brave. And then one day, at the top of a ridge, you see 200 specialized warriors with edged weapons and armor and 100 archers. And you think, maybe fixed agriculture wouldn't be so bad. Because the fact is, the economies of scale in violence are so large that it was an irresistible revolution, but it was an economic revolution. Because specialization meant that you went from one person who might know something about leather to someone who could turn leather into armor or shoes. And that's all they did. And other people provided their food, and other people built their houses. So by specializing, there's an explosion in productivity. And the population of the world went up by 100,000%, an enormous increase. We get cities. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? The point is, it doesn't matter. That kind of economic revolution is irresistible. Second great economic revolution was the industrial. And again, it largely sucked. It was a bad move for many people when you first move from villages to the dark satanic mills spewing pollutants into the atmosphere. And for some people, the quality of life went down for a little while. But we could have hundreds of times as many people. And whereas the Neolithic Revolution meant that 
The cooperation horizon was now expanded from 100 people to 10,000, to the limits of the city. In the Industrial Revolution, you see the cooperation horizon extend across cities through trade. Now, because of division of labor and the production line method of producing things, relatively poor people could afford commodities that until then only the very wealthy would have had. So Adam Smith's parable of the woolen coat meant that I, as a lower middle class person, could employ people that I'd never met and didn't know to make exactly what I wanted, which was a woolen coat of higher quality than a king would have had just 100 years earlier. So again, an irresistible revolution. What I want to do is talk about what I think is the third great revolution. In it, there's two things to think about. So if all you do is take away two things from this talk, please make them these two. First, software plays the same role in this revolution that automation played in the industrial. Automation displaced human workers and increased productivity if you're talking about producing physical things. Software, likewise, will it dramatically increase productivity, reduce transactions cost, and displace human workers. Things that were one done by, once done by human beings, and lots of them, will now be done much more cheaply with software. Problem with saying it's done much more cheaply by software is rather bloodless. Because there are people who used to do that and get paid and they've lost those jobs. Those jobs are gone. They're not lost to China. They're not lost to other countries. They're lost to, as has always been the case, increased productivity. The history of humanity, when you write the history of humanity, it is increased productivity displacing, disrupting, destroying previous ways of organizing society. This will also be very disruptive. The second thing, I said there were two. You thought I forgot. The second thing is that for the first time, entrepreneurs are going to be able to make money by selling reductions in transactions costs. Until now, in order to make money, you have to make a new thing, a new product, or find a way of reducing the cost of, producing, of making existing products. Now, for the first time, we're going to be able to make substantial fortunes simply by selling software platforms that reduce transactions costs so that people can find each other. To remind you of why that's important, let me show a short video about exchange. Because at the base of the sharing economy is the importance of exchange. You ready? Are you ready? All right, so why is exchange important? We have so much stuff already. We're just inundated with stuff. I have a large storage unit that I pay $145 a month to rent because it's big and it's completely full of stuff that both of my sons, who have now graduated from college and are living elsewhere, are convinced that someday they will want. I believe that there's a better use for that stuff. And there's certainly a better use for that space in my $145. Why don't I get rid of it? Let me tell you a story. One of my dissertation advisors was Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1993. 
Of course, that had nothing to do with me, but it is a wise thing to do to have as a dissertation advisor someone who's going to win a Nobel Prize because it makes you look smart. At my dissertation defense, Doug asked a question, and being an economist, I walked up to the board and I was drawing equations on the board, and after a while, Doug mercifully put his hand up and said in the same voice that you would use to a pitiful small child, Michael, Michael, no. The answer is transactions costs. And I realized that for Doug, it didn't matter what the question was. The answer is transactions costs. <laughs> and he had a point. That's the answer to almost every important question. Why, let me ask again, do I have so much stuff? Thank you. <laughs> transactions cost. There's somebody somewhere that wants all of that stuff and would probably pay quite a bit more since I'm willing to give it away for almost nothing. But instead, my older son who lives, who he's a third year grad student at NYU and he's a stone hipster. <clears throat> he always has to eat his, he burns his mouth when he eats his soup because he has to eat it before it's cool. I can wait. <laughs> he wants to have very little stuff in his apartment. A lot of young people would prefer not to have very much stuff, but old people have tons and tons of stuff. It would be better to reallocate the stuff that we have already. How might that work? Well, in that video on exchange, that's mostly barter. But notice that the three conditions that I put on people with the shirts are actually analogous to reductions in transactions cost. First, you can only trade with the people beside you. So if transactions costs are very high, stuff stays where it is. It doesn't go to the higher valued use. But then you can trade with anyone in the whole row, which means that now transactions costs are somewhat lower. Or you can trade with anyone in the room. And the shirts go without any central plan or direction to a much higher valued use. Whether it's the higher value, highest valued use, I don't know. But the shirt may start here and go here and then go up there. We would have had a really hard time planning that out. But just with that series of binary exchanges, we have much better allocation of the stuff that we already have. Consider, please, the widget. Now, a widget is a mythical, non-existent thing, but I have a picture of one. <laughs> You'll notice that it's very manly. It's hard metal, it's made of gears, and it has no obvious purpose. Again, I can wait. But the widget is something that economists often use as something to describe that we exchange. So suppose that one person, person A, has a widget and likes it some, values it at a dollar. Would, would sell it, though, at any price greater than a dollar. Another person, B, wants it and would pay any price less than five dollars. Who should own the widget? Well, I think you can make a moral argument that it is a bad thing for me to use something that someone else needs more. If I use something that someone else needs more, and there's some way of avoiding that that doesn't harm me, I should do that. Well, if B pays A, A's better off and B's better off. So it's a mutually beneficial exchange. But what might keep it from happening? Information, and there's, let me elaborate about what transactions costs are. 
To make it easy, transaction costs are three other TR words. Triangulation, transfer, and trust. Triangulation, transfer, and trust. Now, triangulation would, incur inf would include information. We have to find each other. We'd have to negotiate. We have to know whether the thing really is what it seems. Transfer means we actually have to effect the exchange. And it doesn't have to be barter. Barter requires a double coincidence of once. But if we can exchange using money, then we're both better off with having some kind of numeraire good. But then we have to transfer the money. If we had a way of having the money be transferred by the software, that would be better. And finally, trust. I don't know if this is a real widget. I don't know if the money you're offering me is real. I don't know if you're going to rob me or not provide the service that you've promised. So we can break transactions cost down into those three things, triangulation, transfer, and trust. So let's suppose that those transactions costs are seven. Well, that would mean that there would be no transaction because the surplus of this exchange is only $4. A and B may never have met. They may never have considered exchanging because it's sort of like Bastiat's unseen. This is not something that we've thought about making a commodity. Well, maybe it's just as well that it's not a commodity. I think there are objections that say maybe we'd be better off if so many things were not commoditized. It's not up to us. If transactions costs fall, more things will become commoditized. It's just the, the economic logic of reduced transactions costs that more things will be commoditized. But suppose an entrepreneur realizes that he can make money by selling reductions in transactions costs. The widget is already there. It's just in my damn storage unit because one of my sons had it. I don't know what it is. I want to get rid of it. Somebody writes a piece of software. Maybe it's Craigslist. And they, they charge a small fee. So I list it on, with this software. The entrepreneur, E, charges a dollar. Well, I sell it for $2, so I get a dollar more than I needed, which is one. The entrepreneur takes one. Transactions cost use one up. And notice that transactions cost here are like friction in physics. They just heat. It burns off. And B is able to buy it for $4. So A, B, and E are all better off by a dollar, and one dollar of the surplus is burned up and in transactions cost. And the widget is now at a higher valued place. Society is better off and more prosperous. Why is it that we own things rather than rent them? Ed, help me out. Thank you very much. See? My man. That's weird when you think about it because you haven't thought about it. Why do we own things rather than rent them? And the answer is transactions cost. Doug was right. Once you start seeing this, it's true almost everywhere. Most of the time. Now, the reason that I own a hamburger instead of renting it is that I use it up when I eat it. But if I have a suit, what I'm really interested in, because that's a durable commodity, is the stream of services that's associated with owning that. If I own a drill, then what I'm interested in is the stream of services. The reason I own a car is I'm interested in a stream. Of, I want it to last. Well, that stream of services that goes out into the future means that I'm basically renting from myself. I'm paying all the costs to own it, and then I rent it from myself. If there were some way of renting it more cheaply from somewhere else, where it includes all of the costs of renting, I would rent rather than own. Now, 
you might say, yes, but people use the ownership of stuff as a status symbol, and I would insert one word, old, in front of people. Old people do that. Young people tend to be proud of having less stuff and more experiences. So if you look at my Facebook page, you see my pathetic BMW. If you look at my son's webbook, uh, Facebook page, you see his trip to Cuba or South Africa. So people collect experiences rather than stuff. So the things that pass for status symbols are pretty malleable. I'm a Rosovian on this question. So I, I don't think that it's just given that people want to have giant McMansions full of stuff they don't use as a status symbol. In fact, it's easy for me to imagine that pretty soon that'll be a sign that these people are wasting resources that could be better used somewhere else. Question is, is there some way of achieving this that people can also make money from? And the answer is yes, and that's the basic value proposition of the sharing economy. When I flew here, I landed in Hartford, and I immediately went to the Hertz desk and talked to a person. Not. What happened was my phone buzzed and it said, your car is in slot 218. I went to slot 218 and there above it was my name. In case I was confused about 218, it also said Michael Munger. I got in, the keys are in it. Insurance, the car that I wanted, all taken care of by software. No human being touches it. Now, it is true that on the way out, a woman checked my ID. It was the only human being that was involved in the transaction. All of those other jobs are gone and taken over by software because software eats the world. There's a dramatic reduction in transactions cost. It's much easier for me. Now, I have a laptop. Why? Transactions costs. Why would I own a laptop? I usually don't use a laptop. I have a desktop at home and a desktop at my office. But when I travel, I use a laptop. I travel pretty often, but still I probably don't use my laptop more than 30 days a year. I could rent a laptop just like I rent a car. I get to the airport and I go buy Laptopia, slide my credit card, or the RFID chip in my phone speaks to the pod and tells the pod that I'm here, my laptop comes down, it's preloaded with what I wanted because that's already part of my software profile. All of my files and all of my software actually live in the cloud anyway. All I need is an internet connection and a keyboard and some kind of device for showing me. It could be a screen, it could be a projector. It's dumb for me to own a laptop. The reason I do is transactions cost. If I could rent it more cheaply, I would. And with software, it should be pretty easy to do that just like I don't get here and buy a car. How many of you all ever used blah blah car? Let me ask the question a different way. Ma'am, do you hitchhike? Do you hitchhike? You don't hitchhike? Why not? Ed? Transactions cost. I, I panicked her so much, I was, was going to call on Ed again. You don't hitchhike because a lot of times people will say, oh, it's creepy. Well, right. Don't ask me how I know this. But if I see a young woman walking in some city and I pull over and ask her if she wants a ride, right, the police get called, there's trouble. 
Don't ask me how I know this. And the same thing if I ask somebody else for a ride. Hey, will you give me a ride? No, because it's creepy. But suppose we could solve the three problems of triangulation, transfer, and trust. Blah, blah, car is a hitchhiking service. If, if I've given versions of this talk in Central Europe, so Slovakia, Czech Republic, Romania, half the audience would have used blah, blah, car this week. Because for five, seven euros, you can go from Brno to Prague. And on the train, that's 70 euros. So when you watch, look at the trucks on 91 or 84. There's nobody in that passenger seat. Why? Transactions costs. Because you would have to find a person going to the place you're going to at the time that you're going who's not creepy, whose ID you have, and you could have to have a price negotiated and the money transferred all without hassle. We couldn't possibly do that, right? That's what Blah Blah Car does. Half of you in Central Europe would have used this. It's a tremendous way of taking advantage of existing transportation capacity. There's no additional cost to the system. No additional pollution. It's just a much better way of getting around. And it's actually extremely convenient because think how many trucks are on the road. And it doesn't cost the driver much. And in fact, in Bobby McGee, you got to sing every, every song the driver knew. That's an old person joke. Y'all just. <clears throat> so every three or four minutes, there's a truck going by somewhere. And I can wait maybe 20 minutes, and there's going to be a truck going where I want to go. The only reason that we don't take advantage of that is transactions cost. Blah, blah, car is heavily used. Anybody use Spinlister? When y'all leave here, what do you do with your bikes? Maybe you take them home if you live nearby. You probably pay to store them, which means that it's a liability. Suppose that instead you could rent it out. It would be an asset, and somebody else would be using it. We don't need all the bikes that we have. I have two damn bikes in my storage unit, and they're great bikes. I could use Spinlister and rent them out. You can rent luggage. You don't travel very often, or maybe a, a backpack that you don't use very much. Kitchen equipment, all sorts of things. If you live in a city, you can rent from Spinlister. Many people own things and are paying to have them stored. If you could get just a fairly small amount of money, rather than paying to store them, you'd be a lot better off. Now, as I said, the problem may be that we may commoditize some things that shouldn't be commoditized. I'm not going to ask how many people have used Ashley Madison. <laughs> Jerry, you're laughing too much, sweetie. <laughs> if we reduce the transactions cost of having an affair without getting caught at the margin, it's likely that that will happen more. And that may very well be a bad thing. But if entrepreneurs can make money by selling, reductions in transactions cost, it's going to happen. It's very difficult to prevent. So I put this up to say it doesn't all have to be good. It doesn't have to be things that we approve of. But the, the transactions cost of having an affair are partly the threat of getting caught. If I could find another married person who's not married to me, it's actually pretty safe because they already have married partners. They're just looking for a weekend fling. So it's much safer if I can find that other person. Is that a good thing? It doesn't matter. 
You need a ride. I have a car in a few minutes. Why don't I give you a ride? The answer is transactions cost. I actually thought about this yesterday. I was flying here from BWI on the Southwest flight. The young woman sitting beside me was a sophomore at a college called Trinity and was an English major. And I talked to her a little bit. And I actually thought about offering her a ride. And I said, that's really creepy. I'm not going to do that because that's just gross. But I was, it's not that. It's, it's a fair distance from the airport, and I was coming right down here from the airport. I could easily have given her a ride. But it was hard. We, ours, we, we had solved the triangulation problem. We were leaving at the same time. Transfer, I didn't want any money, and I could get her here, but the trust problem is pretty big. So it didn't happen. Uber solves the triangulation problem with software. The driver is told your location, and you know the driver's location. Transfer problem is taken care of by the software because the monetary payment, the price, all of that is done by the software. And trust, remember all you have to be is more trustworthy than a taxi driver, so the bar is pretty low. So we have, for trust, we have to solve the problem of I won't be robbed by my passenger or my passenger won't rob me if I'm the driver. But if you have the person's name, you've done a background check, and you have their financial information, you actually know more about them than you do about a taxi driver. So it's hardly perfect, but it's pretty good. So older people tend to want some specific form of regulation or information. Young people are much more willing to rely on software for information. If y'all are going to go to a restaurant in a town where you're not from, what do you, what do, you do? Yelp. <coughs> You look at reviews on Yelp, and you're looking for one or two bad reviews. So you look at the average and one or two bad reviews. In, in a minute, you know a lot about that restaurant because other people have reviewed it. If you decide what movie to go to, you look at Rotten Tomatoes or some other service. Rotten Tomato provides two pieces of information. How many critics like it, what proportion, and what proportion of audiences like it. Now, I tend to like movies that critics hate and audiences love, because I like chick flicks. My wife likes action movies, but I much prefer things where I can cry. So I can usually find that out from Rotten Tomatoes very quickly. And they're just selling information. What Rotten Tomatoes sells is information. So it solves the trust problem. How many of you, how many of you have used Airbnb? So. Well, you may know the reason why it's called that. There were some programmers, young men, 25 years old, sallow, pasty skin, because they're vampires. They don't go out during the day. And they smell bad. But they don't have much furniture either. And they heard that there was a conference that was going to come to Silicon Valley, and they knew that all the hotels were going to be full and very expensive. So they said, we can make money by renting out our empty apartments. So we'll buy some air mattresses and blow up the air mattresses and give them power bars and some vitamin water for breakfast and call it a B&B. &B. So air bed and breakfast was the original name, and it was because of air mattresses. That didn't last very long, but the air part is sort of cool, so they kept it. And they shortened it to Airbnb. They started writing software to sell reductions in the three, what I would call the three tra transactions cost of triangulation, transfer, and trust. So if I walk around in New York, there's a bunch of dark windows. 
And sometimes people are gone for a month or more. They're still paying rent. They're still paying insurance. If they could rent it out, they could make back some part of the fixed cost that they're paying anyway. But it's creepy to walk around saying, would you like to stay in my apartment? Again, don't ask. You're not going to be able to find that person. But the software can match people. So the founders of Airbnb were at Y Combinator, which was a uh, entrepreneurship incubator. And Sam Altman, who was then, then head of Y Combinator, talked to them and said, you, I understand you write programs, but who's your customer? You have to go out and talk to them. And they said, well, we don't need customers. It's on the internet. We write programs like they were talking to a little child. And Sam Altman said, no, go to New York, do a proof of concept, knock on doors, actually talk to other human beings during the day, and take really great pictures of these apartments. And then once you can get that started, then you'll, be able, you, that you'll know more about what it is they want by talking to them, just instead of just writing programs. Well, fairly quickly, 2008, there you see that only New York and Denver. What happened in Denver in 2008? Democratic National Convention. So one of the things that they did for proof of concept was do this during the Democratic National Convention because so many people wanted to see now President Obama's acceptance speech. And then it starts to take off. 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. So that tells you where the concentrations of rental units are. Why are there so many in Europe? Did they go there? No, people from Europe went to New York. And they stayed and said, I have an apartment in Paris or Vienna or London. And it's vacant a month a year. The one in Paris, especially being French, there's a rule. You can't be in Paris in August. You have to leave. But that means there's places in Paris in August. So the concept sold itself once they got started. 650,000 listings, 500,000 people per day, almost 60,000 cities and almost 200 countries. It doesn't have to be, the thing about the software is it doesn't have to be houses. So you can stay in a yurt, RVs, boats, or 13,000 people stayed in castles. Summer travel increases, it just keeps increasing at an increasing rate. It's an amazing example of the interest of a second derivative. Airbnb would be the third largest hotel chain in the world if it were a hotel, hotel chain. So the other two you've heard of, Hilton and Marriott. Remember, this company started in 2008. Airbnb would be the third largest. Now, they're not a hotel company. Those revenues come from selling reductions in transactions costs. They don't sell apartments. What they do is they find people who want an apartment and people who have one. They just sell the reduction in transactions cost. So as I said, the three revolutions. The difference is that the sharing or transactions cost economy is more about exchange or matching, whereas the first two were about production. So let me skip ahead just a little bit. I'm happy to share this. <coughs> Let me ask 
this when it comes to the size of the disruption at the end of the Industrial Revolution. I know you all don't go to bars, but if you went to a bar, you could win the following bet, almost certainly. What country in the world lost the most manufacturing jobs between 1995 and 2010? What country lost the most manufacturing jobs? Anybody want to take a guess? China. China by far. How can that be? That's a Chinese factory in 1995. You have 1,000 women with sewing machines. 2010, you have one guy in an automated production process. He has enough time to do Tai Chi. Maybe there's two or three others. That's 997 jobs lost. Now, if you mean net, it may be the United States. China keeps finding more jobs because they keep producing more. But the whole world has lost jobs to automation, to productivity. So the thing about this is it's easy to blame some other country if they seem to have lower labor costs. What they have is more productivity per dollar. So that's what's going to happen in the sharing economy. We're going to go from the software equivalent to a bunch of people at counters to a few people with software and all of us dealing only with the equivalent of robots. So transactions cost multiply, the reduction in transactions cost, multiply the number of mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges using only existing resources. So what you might call the middleman revolution, where people make money from being middlemen, comes from selling reductions in transactions costs, not products or services, but the more efficient use of a product or service that already exists. So I have two challenges in a parable, and we're done. Two challenges. Many people on my side, that is, the people who have a perhaps naive, almost myth mystical faith in the ability of markets to fix things, tend to like what they see as innovations as Uber, like Uber, even though they're very disruptive. Well, I have 35 acres of forest land south of Pittsburgh, North Carolina. I have a forester that helps us harvest these sustainably. We want to maintain the, the habitat um, so that I can go out there and look at beautiful animals and kill them with a gun so I can eat them because there's no wolves. So we need me to harvest the deer, and I do that. But we also try to make sure that the trees are harvested in a way that will allow us to continue to harvest trees for a long time. Suppose one day, I hear chainsaws. And 35 acres is pretty big, but it's not that big. It sounds close. I think, that sounds like it's on my land. So I walk back there, and I see, in fact, men with trucks and chainsaws harvesting my damn trees. And I say, what are y'all doing? And they say, well, we can provide forest products and papers to consumers at much lower cost than you can because you have to pay the tax cost and the cost of the property. And this is really all about consumers. So we can do a much better job for consumers. And I say, excuse me. I make a call, and men with guns come, and badges, 
because I have a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper, I, that it's a title. Property has two aspects. Property is a right to use and a right to exclude. Property right is a right to use, it's mine, and a right to exclude. It's not yours. You can't take my trees. And if you try and I call the police, they will come with guns, and if necessary, helicopters and tanks. They work for me, the property owner, because they made a promise. Well, why do y'all like Uber so much? If you look in New York, if you look up at the, on the front left, riveted to the hood of the car, is the equivalent of a piece of paper. It's a medallion. That medallion is a promise. Promise has two parts. The first is, if you have a medallion, you can drive a taxi in Manhattan. And it's a promise to prevent anybody else from offering taxi services in Manhattan. So why do so many of your property rights people like Uber so much? The state made a promise, which it is breaking. People in good faith paid for those medallions. And now they're losing their livelihoods. Why do we celebrate so much when people lose their livelihoods? It's pretty tough. Second, wooden shoes, sabot. <clears throat> Northern France, Belgium, in the late 18th century, many people made living, their living as artisans with hand looms, and they made very high quality linen. So with a hand loom, working hard, you could make a yard or two of material in a day, and the only people that could afford this cloth were very wealthy people. After 1818, 1820, there was a revolution where we started getting spinning jennies, what are called mules, power looms. Power looms could make as much cloth as several hundred people with hand looms. One or two people just managing a power loom could make an enormous amount of cloth. So now for the first time, poor people could afford high quality textiles and clothing. What happened to all of the artisans wearing their wooden shoes who were displaced? They were unhappy. Well, the power looms had very expensive, hard to make wooden gears, very hard wood, but in, the only way that they could get them, the metallurgy wasn't good enough that they could make metal that would last, so they would use hardwood gears. The displaced workers would try to destroy the power looms, throwing their wooden shoes into the gears and breaking them, committing sabotage. They were saboteurs. So we now think of that, of sabotage, as being generally a way to destroy production processes, trying to prevent, it could be military, but economic sabotage is to try to defend one way of doing things against the encroachment of a new way. So if you're an Uber driver in Paris and admit it, taxi drivers might just set you on fire. Lyft used to have those purple mustaches on the front. They don't do that anymore because the taxi drivers would turn it over. Airbnb faces a lot of resistance from uh, tr more traditional hotels. All the new matching way of doing things is going to be extremely destructive <coughs> And the people whose livelihoods are being destroyed are actual real-life people. And they're going to try to prevent it by sabotaging the process. And last, 
How many of y'all have a power drill at home or at your parents' house? Pretty much everybody. Why? Transactions costs. The median lifetime use of a power drill is something under half an hour. If you add up all the time a power drill gets used, now I use mine a lot because I often, I'll come home, my wife says she wants to hang a picture and so I'll put two holes and two anchors and she'll say, well, not there. So I'll go over here and you know, drill two more holes and then we'll, and I put it away and it's underneath some buckets or something or the bikes that my sons have left. But eventually I can find it again. Most people don't use their power drills very often. <clears throat> Suppose, pull up my phone, fire up Uber, I go to power tools, say I want to drill, put my phone down. An Uber driver somewhere, I don't know where, and it matters that I don't need to know where, is driving by a hardware store, and I don't know where that is either, picks up the power drill for me. Which one? Well, the one that I've told the software before is my preference, that's been stored there. Picks it up, but isn't it complicated to figure the route out? No, because the software can solve the traveling salesman problem to put you at locations in the minimum total time to be able to travel. My phone buzzes. Ah, my drill must be here. So there's a locking pod out front that I can use my phone. The chip in my phone tells the pod to open, and the pod tells my phone that there's a drill in it. So I go out, I get the drill, I use it, I put it back in the pod. The pod is smart. It tells the software to have another Uber driver come by and pick it up. So I can rent a commercial quality drill for $3 and have it delivered in 10 minutes. Why would I own a power drill or a sausage maker or a bread maker or an espresso maker? All the stuff that our houses are full of and the closets that reduce the amount of space that we have in our houses. So if I have commercial quality power drills, that's better and cheaper than the drill that I actually have. And I don't have to store it. We probably need something like eight or 10 million power drills. There's 106 million power drills in the United States. That means that the people who used to make the other 90 million power drills lose their jobs. This is a significant thing. It's a big deal. <clears throat> I have, as I admitted before, a black BMW 330, and I'm afraid I'm just the sort of person you think drives a black BMW 330. I'm an asshat, cutting in and out of traffic. I approach my house and there's a shrine and the door opens and I pull into the shrine called the garage. And it's quite a bit of real estate. And in cities, we have these storage units called parking spaces or underground parking spots. In New York, recently a parking space, a space, sold for a million dollars. That was a nice parking space. It was, you know, it was secure, it was underground, but still. Why would you want to take, in my case, quite an expensive automobile, tie up all the money that's in that, store it in a really expensive place, drive for 15 minutes, store it in another place, all the parking lots around universities are a giant waste of space. I use it 30 minutes a day, four days a week. All the rest of the time it's sitting. The only reason I would do that is transactions cost. Suppose that we had a few people who specialized in driving. So some people would have cars. And it might even be their own car. But at the margin, they can sell. All they have to do is cover their marginal rather than their average cost. So they can do it much more cheaply. They can just recover some part of their mm -hmm. overall costs. 
Well, here's the thing. Is this good or bad? Well, we'll have a lot less stuff, which we'll use much more efficiently. We'll have much less storage space. We can make bike lanes pretty easily most places because the place we used to park will now be open. So people on rented bikes will be using them instead of with owned cars. Economists worry about a particular concept called real wages. Real wages are the nominal wage divided by the price level. What's going to happen to real wages? Well, I've already told you that for many people, nominal wages are going to fall. The traditional five-day-a-week job making stuff is going to disappear. What's going to happen to prices? Well, it's much, much cheaper to rent than it is to own. Prices are going to fall. Which is going to fall by more? Well, that's the question. That's the question of whether this is good or bad. If prices fall by more than your wage, you'll be better off. Even though you now only work two days a week, you're going to make enough money in those two days to be a truly remarkable Call of Duty player. <laughs> and so your identity is going to be, I am a badass Call of Duty player, and I work two days a week, and I can make enough money. I mean, how much does it cost to be on Facebook? How much does it cost to use Twitter? All of these things don't even count in GDP because they're not priced. The advertising is priced, but the use, the consumer surplus and the value is not priced. More and more things are already free because they are software which is eating the world. For many people, I don't think most, but for many people, wages are going to fall by more than prices. They will be truly destitute and hopeless. These revolutions have always had winners and losers. The question is, how are we going to be able to accommodate that? Now, how many of you have heard of the gig economy? There's a great podcast from last summer um, on Econ Talk with Russ Roberts about Hollywood. And I think Hollywood is the paradigm for the gig economy. There are hundreds of different disciplines in making a movie. If I can hire all of them because on LinkedIn I can find their resume and background. So on software, for free, I can find them. The first day of the photo shoot, all of them know what to do. They articulate like a machine that can put them together. For six weeks, we have the shoot, and at the end, they're done. Do they have a job? No. They had a gig. They came together, and they get six, $7,000 a day. They, the experts get paid a lot. So in this gig, you work for six weeks, and then maybe you don't work for a year, but you've made a whole lot of money in the meantime. So rather than traditional jobs, people will form teams for a particular task and then break up and then form an entirely different team. Now, maybe you'll know some of them, but you don't have to because specialization will have increased to the level where I'd be able to write a job description and find someone who does exactly that and has three or four years experience doing only that on LinkedIn or some other kind of software. So the way, the very relationship that we have to employment will change. I think that we have fetishized two things, the ownership of stuff and having a job. And just 30 years from now, neither one of those things is going to be terribly important. For many of us, that's going to be good. For some of us, it's going to be bad. It's up to you how to try to plan to accommodate that. Thanks for listening.